0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Food and Psych podcast where I, Kimberly Wilson, Chartered Psychologist and Cook, take you through all things food and psychology. Today though I'm going to step away from food for a moment and talk about an important issue that almost everyone will experience but that doesn't get very much airtime. I want to talk today about grief. It's a difficult and painful subject that can leave us feeling helpless and lost for words. When someone is in the midst of grief, they might not know how or what they're feeling. Similarly, when someone is grieving, it can be difficult to know what to say or do to try to support them. But we will all experience grief and we will all encounter people in our lives who are grieving. And so I think it's really important to think about what is happening in the grief process, what can help and what can hinder coming to terms with loss. Grief is the evidence that we have loved someone, or been attached to something. So before I get into the details about grief itself, I'll just mention a couple of things about love and attachment. Hilary Zunin said, "'The risk of love is loss, and the price of loss is grief." And this is certainly true. One of the open secrets of love, the thing we know and feel but don't talk much about, is that it's a very scary business. When we are truly loved, whether it's a romantic or family relationship, We feel that we are accepted for who we are, without conditions. We need to know that there is a heart or a mind in which we are cherished. To really love someone is the highest form of acceptance. So the flip side of this is that the absence or withholding of love is the ultimate rejection. We feel we've been dismissed in the most painful and personal way. And it's why dating is so scary. It's why dating is so scary, especially if it doesn't work out instead of forming a close bond we feel we're on our own. In the dating world people often describe themselves or others as being afraid of commitment. At the heart of that fear is the fear of loss. Rather than being afraid of being close with someone the person is very worried about what it will be like if they allow themselves to be close to someone and then for some reason they lose them. Whether they imagine that the relationship will end, that the other person will leave them or in their deepest fears that their loved one will die, the fear is not of closeness, but of separation. The fear is of the pain they will experience when they are pulled apart from the loved person. This is the kind of irony of the fear of commitment. Often the thing that the person wants most, what would do them most good, is the commitment. But the fear of loss compels them to keep love at a distance. So why would someone be afraid of closeness? In my experience, there are a number of scenarios, but they all, I think, come back to one thing, a previous traumatic loss. When it comes to emotions, we rarely fear things that we haven't been taught to fear. With emotions, we learn by example. So sometimes that teaching will come from watching someone else. Babies whose mothers react anxiously to seeing spiders will go on to develop a fear of spiders themselves. But we may also teach ourselves to fear certain feelings particularly if, having experienced them in the past, they caused us pain, felt overwhelming, or took time to recover from. When we eventually emerge from that experience, we say, sometimes consciously, I'm never going to feel like that again. And the wheels are set in motion for the avoidance of any situation that puts us at risk of going back to those emotional places. But Hilary was right. The risk of love is loss. And if we work to avoid loss, we are, at the same time, diminishing our opportunities for love. Rationally, we might know this, but a previous traumatic loss, particularly when it comes as a surprise or when we're not emotionally mature enough to cope with it, can make us feel that any further pain of that sort just isn't worth the risk. Perhaps we lost a parent or sibling in early life. Maybe a particularly vicious parental divorce left us feeling like our whole world had been turned upside down. Often being sent away from home, perhaps to boarding school or to live with relatives, even when we know the reason was sensible, can leave us feeling cruelly abandoned and cut off from love. In some cases, having a parent who was there but for some reason unable to care for us, perhaps because they were severely depressed or preoccupied with their own trauma, can leave an emotional scar that, when pressed, tells us that love just isn't worth it. In later life, losing a loved one to illness or infidelity can be devastating. It can feel unfair. We think to ourselves, I invested all of this time, energy and emotion just to lose it all. The pain and the sense of injustice combine to make us think that we've been had, that it was all a con and we're not going to allow ourselves to be duped by love again. All of this anger and sadness at the injustice is a normal and healthy response to the pain of loss but it's not grief. It may be the start of the process but it's not the whole experience. So what is grief and what's going on when we're grieving? He didn't get everything right but Freud very helpfully described two psychological responses to loss which he called mourning and melancholia. Mourning is the healthy processing of loss. When we mourn, we allow ourselves to feel the full range of emotions associated with the person and the situation. We might feel sadness, as well as anger, confusion, but also happiness when recalling good memories and gratitude for the experiences we had with that person. Psychologically, mourning is a process of reorganisation. As we come to terms with the reality of the absence of the lost person, we have to reconsider aspects of our own identity. We might go from being a wife to a widow, from a sister to an only child. And it's not just actual states that have to be rearranged. Our hopes and expectations may have to be reimagined too. Future events where the lost person was expected to be in attendance may now go ahead without them. So as well as the actual physical loss, we have to deal with the loss of all the things that we took for granted, the unexpected and unusual absences. Someone who loses a parent before they get married, for example, will have a resurgence of feeling on their wedding day, even if it takes place many years after that parent died. Importantly, in healthy mourning, the grieving person is able to think of the lost person in a realistic way, as a whole person. They might say, I remember the time Grandpa taught me how to make paper planes. He was so patient. But he could be stubborn too. Do you remember the time he stopped talking to me for two months because I threw away his old newspapers? There's a sense of balance and totality. The lost person wasn't perfect, but that's okay. They didn't have to be. Our ability to love them included the less attractive parts of their personalities. In healthy mourning, there is gradually a sense of separation from the lost person. This is not to suggest that we stop loving them or hope to forget them. What it means is that there is a process of separating our identity, our sense of self, from that of the lost person. And this is essential in order to be able to move forward with your life. In order to, for example, eventually start a new relationship, you must stop thinking of yourself as still being in a relationship with your deceased partner. That doesn't mean that starting a new relationship proves that you have mourned successfully. For some people, it's quite the opposite. They're quick to jump into a new relationship in order to not have to grieve the loss of the old one. Rather, the clue that you are emerging from a successful grieving process is the inner feeling that you can hold both the sadness of the loss alongside the gratitude for the previous love, with a quiet hopefulness about the future. Melancholia, on the other hand, doesn't offer such a helpful prognosis. From the outside, melancholia may look the same as morning. There will be sadness, perhaps numbness and withdrawal. Internally though, the landscape is quite different. First, there is not the same conceptualization of the lost person as whole. In melancholia, the lost person is thought about in a very one-sided way. They were totally kind, completely generous, practically perfect. They are held in the mind as the ideal person. The problem with this idealization is that there is no room then for the other feelings that are a natural part of grief. You can't be angry with an angel, so the griever holds back and represses any of the more hostile feelings that they may feel about the lost person or the fact that they are gone. But emotions that are not expressed do not just go away. They either sit and wait, or they are internally transformed into a physical symptom or some other distress. Without the balancing function of these healthy, hostile feelings, the griever has no reason, they think, to let go of the lost person. Why would you want to be separated from perfection? This leads to the second problem, and that's the lack of separation. If they are unable to reach a balanced, realistic view of the lost person, then the process of lowering the intensity of the attachment is impaired. If this happens, then you have the situation that the person still feels connected to the lost person, and this puts a griever at significant risk. Because you can't be truly alive if you still feel you're at one with someone who has died. In these circumstances, often something within the person dies. They lose a spark in their eyes or they lose interest in life. Alternatively, and I see this sometimes in therapy, they may begin to express suicidal thoughts, wishing or hoping that if they die, they will be reunited with the lost one in heaven or in fantasy. They cannot bear for the two to be in different states. And if they cannot bring the other back to life, then there must be a secondary kind of deadening. I think the risk of someone slipping into melancholia rather than mourning is likely to be higher for parents who have lost children, particularly if the child was a baby or an infant. Loss of children creates enormous challenges to mourning. First of all, because to the grieving parents the child was perfect, And it would be excruciating to harbour hostile feelings towards a lost child. In mourning a child these hostile feelings are directed elsewhere, to the world, to God, to medical staff, to the other parent. It's very common for the connection or affection for one of these to be lost following the death of a child. In addition, when a child is lost we may not feel that we had enough time with them. It may feel like there are too few memories, too few photographs, And then parents also have to contend with the loss of the hopes, dreams and ambitions that they had for the child and for the family. It's an extraordinary burden. And in truth, many parents who have lost children never feel that they do recover completely. That is not to say that recovery from child loss is impossible, but it may have its own unique challenges. People often ask in therapy how they should grieve and of course grief looks and feels different for everyone and there's no standard formula for how it should be done. However there are some behaviours that are more helpful than others and I thought it might be useful to comment on them. The first thing is an observation. Grief is not a constant state. Grief like hunger comes in waves. There may be moments when you feel okay swiftly followed by sobbing then feeling okay again quickly followed by more crying. Many people are alarmed about how rapidly their feelings can shift, worrying either that they should feel one dominant emotion consistently or that these rapid shifts mean that they're going mad. They're not. This is grief. As I mentioned, there is a huge amount of reorganisation going on and it may take a while for the psychological dust to settle. And the cycling emotions reflect this. It can be helpful to tell the people around you about your loss that you don't feel you have to hide your feelings or put on a brave face. Which takes me to my next point. One thing that is unhelpful is suppressing feelings. Emotional suppression is unhelpful not just because it stalls the grieving process but because emotional suppression itself has harmful effects on the body and the brain and can increase feelings of fatigue, pain and reduce resilience. Try to give yourself the time and space to feel the full range of emotions when they arise If you can take time off work or studies to do this, that's great. If you can't, then still try to be gentle with yourself. It may be, of course, that you don't want to break down in the middle of the office, but perhaps there is a quiet room that you can retreat to when you need it. Allowing yourself to feel the full range of emotions includes the hostile emotions I mentioned earlier. Let yourself feel angry at the lost person for being stubborn or unreliable or cantankerous or simply for leaving you. The expression and acceptance of hostile feelings is, I believe, essential for moving through the process of grief. Often people will put unnecessary moral restrictions on themselves when they're grieving. The social moratorium, you must not speak ill of the dead, can, I think, create real problems when people are trying to navigate grief. Just because someone is dead doesn't mean that they weren't human. And humans are complex and multifaceted. The same person who brings you enormous joy can take you to the brink of despair these complexities and contradictions do not disappear at the moment of death and allowing ourselves to continue to see the lost person as a whole person will allow you to grieve them as a whole person too so try not to worry unduly about your emotional reactions sadly in the west we have succeeded in pathologizing many of the normal reactions to life People worry that if they feel normal sadness or anxiety that it's a sign that something is terribly wrong psychologically. As a result, many people will try to keep themselves kind of manically happy and peppy whilst all along knowing that something isn't right. So please be reassured that it's not a sign of illness to feel sad about things that you should legitimately feel sad about. Sadness is not depression. It's not pathological, unnatural or unhealthy to feel sad. As I mentioned, it's not just sadness that you'll feel when you're grieving. As well as a wide range of emotions that go along with loss, there are also some common cognitive signs, such as poor concentration, lethargy and apathy. So this would not be the time to launch a long, complicated or mentally demanding project. Take it as easy as you can until you feel more able to focus and concentrate. It's also worth noting that grief is not only experienced emotionally, our bodies and minds are closely connected and it's common to experience physical symptoms of emotional distress. These might be things like tightness in the chest, shortness of breath, insomnia, or loss of appetite. Grief, as with all emotions, is a total body experience. Taking all of this into account is valuable to pay attention to what's happening in your body when you're feeling any intense emotion and to engage the body in the process of recovery. Physical movement is a good idea if you feel able. Biologically, it can help to lower circulating compounds associated with stress, but mentally, it can also be very grounding, helping to reconnect you to your body and the outside world. However, this is not the time for hardcore or intense exercise. All this will do is overstress your body and increase the risk of feeling fatigued in the long run. Gentle total body movements such as walking, swimming and yoga can be very beneficial in the early stages. Talking about the body, I want to make a special mention of crying. I know that this will seem obvious for many of you, but there are still a substantial group of people who resist or suppress crying because they've been told that it's a sign of weakness. But there are a few things about crying that it's useful to know, especially for people who think that there's no point in crying because it doesn't do anything. First of all, you have three types of tears. Basal, which stop your eyes from drying out. Reflex to help wash out little bits of grit that get blown in by the wind and psychic for expressing emotion. So no matter how you look at it all tears do something. Second psychologically crying is the recognition of a real emotional state and if nothing else we all need to be able to face reality. If you can't accept that you're sad how can you address the causes of your sadness? Thirdly Keeping in your feelings is energetically demanding. In studies where people have been told to hold in their pain when holding their hands in ice water or watching a distressing video, for example, participants had less endurance and were much more fatigued than people who were allowed to show their discomfort. Finally, holding back tears has serious negative effects on the body. It increases levels of stress hormones and is linked to elevated levels of harmful inflammation. People with inflammatory disorders such as colitis and those diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome are also more likely to be emotional suppressors. So crying is an evolutionary preserved mechanism and allowing yourself to cry when you feel the need is healthy and responsible. Staying with the body. When we feel intense emotions of any kind, the part of the nervous system that deals with digestion shuts down and the part that deals with stress and the fight or flight response kicks in. This means your digestion can suffer when you're stressed or feeling very low. When you're grieving, it's important that you look after yourself and also give your body what it needs to get through the process. You can think about trying to eat nutritious foods that are easy to digest, such as soups and stews, noodle broths and smoothies. If you don't feel like cooking, perhaps think about asking a friend to make an extra portion of their meals for you. This can be a really good way to allow yourself to be cared for when you're grieving. Eating together is one of the ways you can stay connected to others during this time. I think there is something really powerful in the symbolism of being nourished and nurtured by someone when you perhaps feel less inclined or less able to care for yourself. That may be actual nourishment or emotional nourishment, but we're not made to deal with pain by ourselves. Talk if you can, and if you can't talk, simply be with caring others. Grief is a dynamic process. It's not a well that you fall in, it's a lake that you walk through. In some places, the water is shallower, and your progress will feel easy. In others, there will be potholes or tangles that feel like they're pulling you under. At these points, it's important to reach out to someone who can pull you up. No one will be able to pull you out completely, the steps out to the other side are the ones that you have to take for yourself, but others can help you along the way. You can imagine these as small islands in the lake that you can rest on. On one, you have lunch with a friend. On another, you might go dancing. And you can enjoy the respite of these moments, knowing that you will return to the water later. And it's worth remembering that most people will come through grief naturally, but if you find you feel it's more like a well and less like a lake, you may need to speak to a professional who can support you through. The task in mourning is to feel the pain but to stay connected to life. There are a few ways you might think about doing this. Spending some time in nature is beneficial. Being surrounded by nature has its own demonstrated benefits and well-being, but specific to grieving, it can help to keep you in direct contact with life. So you could go for a walk in the park or simply take care of houseplants. I think it's also important to remind yourself that although there is this loss, there is still beauty in the world. So when you're ready, go and look at art or watch a dance performance. Stay connected to life. My final comment is to say that all losses are real. It's not just people that we become attached to. Our careers, for example, form part of our identity. Whether that's about the status it provides or our expectations about what our futures will look like. We all have career goals and ambitions. So job insecurity or redundancy can take all of those things away from us and we're forced to reassess the person we became accustomed to being. Similarly with our health, if we become ill or acquire a disability there will be a need to mourn the loss of our previous good health and the expectations that we had that it would carry on unchanged into the future. Often just uncovering new knowledge means that we have to give up a formerly held belief or worldview or sustaining fantasy. Realising, for example, that our parents are imperfect human beings, discovering an affair or coming terms with your sexuality, all of these and more require a letting go of previously held beliefs and a reorganisation of our identities. In these cases, all of the things I've mentioned still stand and you are just as entitled to grieve these losses as you are the loss of a person. When you lose someone or something, there should be no expectation from yourself or anyone else about what grief looks like or how long it should take. There is no, I should be over it by now. It takes as long as it takes and your task is only to treat yourself with a little kindness and compassion as you work through it. Okay, that's all I have for now. I hope that this episode has been useful that it either helps you through your own process or allows you to support someone else to bear their grief. Go slowly and go gently. That just leaves me to say thank you very much for listening and until next time, I wish you the very best of all.